Disabled Americans have protested and lobbied for their rights, facing discrimination and opposition to their efforts to live independently as self-determining people. Over the course of the 20th century, those affected by mental illnesses, learning disabilities, or physical handicaps achieved progress towards these goals and emerged as a distinct social group, demonstrating that the disabled are anything but helpless. To understand the magnitude of this progress, it is important to understand the eugenics movement in the first decades of the 20th century. Eugenicists argued that the genetic features of the American population could be improved through forced sterilization and selective breeding. Their actions violated the human rights of disabled people. In 1914, Harry Laughlin proposed a model eugenical sterilization law, which advocated the sterilization of those he referred to as the, quote, socially inadequate, end quote. At the time the law was published, 12 states had already enacted similar sterilization laws, and by 1924, approximately 3,000 people had been involuntarily sterilized. Carrie Buck, a 17-year-old unwed mother, was the first person to be sentenced to involuntary sterilization by the Supreme Court. Medical officials testified that Carrie and her mother shared the hereditary traits of, quote, feeble-mindedness, end quote, and sexual promiscuity. In the court decision of Buck v. Bell, Supreme Court of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said the following, It is better for all the world if instead of waiting to execute degenerate offspring for crime, or to let them starve for their imbecility, society can prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. The ruling of Buck v. Bell had not been overturned to this day. 33 states had laws at various times under which more than 60,000 Americans suffered involuntary sterilization procedures. A few decades after the eugenics movement, the disabled achieved some significant progress when Franklin D. Roosevelt became president of the United States in 1932. Perhaps Roosevelt's most significant contribution to the disability rights movement were the relevant parts of Roosevelt's New Deal. The Social Security Act of 1935 included federally provided health insurance and wages for disabled Americans who were unable to work, granting them a limited measure of independence from state institutions and charity organizations. In addition to Roosevelt's efforts, the disabled also advocated for themselves. The disabled people of New York City accused Roosevelt's own Works Progress Administration of discrimination. The Home Relief Bureau of New York City had been stamping the applications of the physically handicapped, allegedly to remove the applications from consideration. Physically disabled people from New York City formed the League of the Physically Handicapped in 1935 in response to this injustice. The League ended its protests when the Works Progress Administration agreed to provide more than 1,500 jobs to the disabled in New York City. In the early 1960s, Eunice Kennedy Shriver founded Camp Shriver, later renamed the Special Olympics, a summer camp for intellectually disabled children. Her goals were to explore and develop the children's athletic abilities and to empower the children by focusing on these talents instead of their disabilities. These Special Olympics continued to grow as both a sporting event and an advocacy group for the disabled, eventually showcasing the talents of more than 4.2 million athletes at 70,000 competitions worldwide. Prior to 1973, the law did very little to protect the rights of those with disabilities in the United States. Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973 was the first significant piece of legislation to protect individuals from discrimination based on their disability. To 
targeting employers and organizations that receive any federal financial assistance. Section 504 forbade exclusion from or denial of an equal opportunity to receive program benefits and services. This is the same protection that had been denied to disabled Americans years earlier when they were excluded from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Following two lower court rulings which argued that handicapped children had a right to what they called, quote, free appropriate public education, end quote, Congress passed the Education for All Handicapped Children Act of 1975. In 1978, the government established the National Council on Disability, or NCD, within the Department of Education. For the first time in history, those with disabilities had representatives in the national government advocating for their rights. The representatives from the NCD were instrumental in passing the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990, which was signed into law by George H.W. Bush. The act was one of the most significant pieces of legislation in the history of disabled Americans because it was the first official legislation to provide disabled Americans with all of the protections outlined in the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Disabled people in America continue to struggle against ableism, which is discrimination against the disabled in favor of people without disabilities. Various advocacy groups have made efforts to change public opinion and promote equality. Recently, the West Virginia Disability Youth Caucus worked to ensure that younger generations know about American disabled history. Thanks to their efforts, West Virginia began requiring schools to teach about the history of disability rights during Disability Awareness History Week. There is also currently a movement known as Spread the Word to End the Word, which seeks to remove the word retard from the English language. Those who helped create the movement claimed that the word retard negatively stereotypes disabled people as a burden on society. Together with other advocacy groups, these activists spread the word that rights should not be dependent on people's status as able-bodied or disabled. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe, a language I did not speak. Don't think, don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA, it is because America has not invested in its people. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, well, it didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? My fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their name. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of the people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. children were saved. And their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America.
make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much, and may God bless America. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so as Tripp said, uh, you know, this is, uh, <laughs> this talk is more for me than it is for you guys. This is, this is uh, a personal thing. Um, my brother is severely uh, intellectually disabled. He has cerebral palsy and epilepsy and, and is autistic. Um, and uh, you know, as as I talk, um, you know, we're we're kind of going through a family crisis. I'm from Ohio, so he's back in Ohio, and uh, the the caregivers that were taking care of him had decided, well, we're not going to take care of him anymore. So we were kind of like, I didn't even know if I was going to be here right now. I thought I'm going to have to fly back home and go take care of him. So, so this whole whole talk is is an exploration on my part into the ways that we understand and treat people with disabilities, why we do that, and, and sort of the underlying uh, worldview that we've inherited that we don't even realize most of the time. So this is just kind of my attempt at trying to make sense of some of this, and in the process, learning some really interesting historical facts. Um, so that's, that's kind of where I want to start, just to give you a very quick, brief survey of some of the, the more influential perspectives on disabilities, people with disabilities in the last like 2,000 plus years. So I'm just gonna go really briefly through this uh, and, and then, then get on, just to give you sort of a, a frame kind of a, of where, where we're working in here. So first is Aristotle, um, and, and this is what Aristotle said, which is that he thinks that all children born with deformities should just be let die. They should not be alive. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about why uh, later, but you know, Aristotle's a kind of influential guy, you know, so uh, you may have heard of him. So the next is uh, Augustine, and um, essentially what he's saying in this uh, passage is that if a parent has a child with a disability, uh, they are going to be more grieved over the fact that their child is born with a disability than if they were dead. So that it's worse to have a child with a disability than to have a dead child. Now Luther, um, this is my favorite one, favorite in a sick, twisted way. Uh, there was a boy, 12-year-old boy, who, according to Luther, only ate and shit all day. That's all he did. He didn't do anything else. He ate, like he said, as much as four farmers did. And, and uh, he, he thought that this boy should be suffocated. Why? Because he's a mass of flesh without a soul. And in fact, it's the devil that is his soul. So we should kill him. So we're going to go forward several hundred years. Uh, this was from a court case, Buck v. Bell, in 1927 in the U.S., state of Virginia, um, versus this, this girl, um, this woman. Uh, the, the background of the case is this uh, woman is an intellectually disabled, and um, there are some forced sterilization laws that had been being passed in the, in the United States, uh, and in Virginia in particular. Uh, forcing people with intellectual disabilities to be sterilized so that they couldn't have any more children. And uh, the Supreme Court Justice uh, on the case uh, says that um, uh, we should let them starve for their imbecility uh, so that society can prevent them from procreating. Uh, and this line here, the principle that sustains compulsory vaccination, which is just his way of saying sterilization, is broad enough to cover cutting the fallopian tubes. Three generations of imbeciles are enough. This is from Lee Herzenberg. She, her and her husband um, in the 60s and 70s developed the uh, test 
it, that allows people to, to detect in the womb if uh, your child has any sort of congenital defects or birth defects. It also helped uh, with uh, AIDS being able to detect that sort of stuff. So uh, very, very important, prominent scientist, her and her husband. Why does she do the work that she does? Because her child was born with Down syndrome. And what does she say? She says that if I had known that my child would, had Down syndrome at the time, I would have had an abortion. The fact that we've made it a very happy life for him is kind of beside the point. It's just not right that he exists at all. Like, this is her position. This is what she's saying. And then, I'm not going to read all of this, um, but this, the, you can read some of this if, if you while I'm talking, but it's, this is from an article in a very prestigious medical journal published two years ago, three years ago, about what they call afterbirth abortions. They're suggesting that children born with Down syndrome or intellectual disabilities or deformities should be euthanized after birth if the reason that they, uh, if they would have been aborted, but you kind of missed it, you, you missed the test or something like that, and then they're born and then you discover it, well then that's grounds, you should be able to do that. This, some of their logic is hilarious though, listen to this. It might be maintained that even allowing for the more optimistic assessments of the potential of Down syndrome children, this potential cannot be said to be equal to that of a normal child. But in fact, people with Down syndrome, as well as people afflicted by many other severe disabilities, are often reported to be happy. They can't make sense of that. Like, well, you know what? Some of these people are still happy. I don't understand that. Nevertheless, it's going to be an unbearable, unbearable burden to the family and to society. Therefore, we should euthanize them. Okay. So that's a lot of information, that's a long time scope. And I do this to, to sort of frame what I'm gonna say because a lot obviously has changed since Aristotle to now. But strangely, we've sort of ended up where we've started. And I'll, I'll explain it in a minute, but the rest of the talk, I, I want to look at uh, three, three important moments in the past 200 years, specifically in American history. Um, Amos Young calls these uh, three moments institutionalization, the uh, period of socio-medical control and deinstitutionalization, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I, I think that these periods really, really help to explain and frame sort of how we've come from Aristotle's view full circle to this view. Okay, so it's important to kind of step back a second and go back to Aristotle, I think. Um, now, in the, the ancient world, pre-modern time for Greeks and Romans, people with disabilities, children born with deformities, etc., cetera, uh, had no value because they didn't serve a purpose in society. They couldn't benefit the city in any way, and they were a drain on resources. Therefore, we're going to expose them to the ele elements, which is just a nice way of saying we're going to like, leave them in the woods to die. Like, that's, that's what they did. But there was another reason why they did this. Uh, this is Charles Taylor talking about the enchanted world. Um, so it, it's in the pre-modern world, the ancient world, you know, it was a, an enchanted world, world of spirits, good and bad. Um, so we, we were able to be affected by the spiritual forces. Um, they were able to, to possess us in a sense. So not only did uh, we live in an enchanted world, but those forces sort of could live in us in a sense. So then not only were, were, were people with disabilities not benefiting the city, but they were often thought to be possessed by evil spirits. So killing them was not just a way of protecting resources, food, and, and all that stuff, but of protecting the city from these sort of evil forces. Um, I'll talk about this in a second, but um, slowly, um, 
the process starts to unravel. So we begin a process of disenchantment so that all of the thoughts and, and feelings and meanings that were uh, out there sort of in the world and could affect us are now placed solely in the mind so that we are separate and distinct from the world which is outside of us, right? This is kind of the, we're, you know, the inheritance of this. This is a long process, but this is the world we live in now or how we view the world. So um, along with this process of disenchantment, the forces of sin and evil, which were out there and have like, inhabited us, are now internalized in a different way. So it's not that they are uh, possessing us and we need to get rid of them, but it's now that we are sick or we are ill, so that evil and sin have become internalized and then medicalized into a, a sickness or an illness. So, and that's where this picture comes in. This is called the, the uh, stone of folly or the stone of madness. It was believed that you had something in your head that made you crazy or made you intellectually disabled. And so what do you gotta do? Well, that's where the problem is now, right? It's in you, you there's something medically wrong with you, well, we're gonna dig it out. And look, just look at this guy's grin. He's so happy to be digging this thing out of this other guy's forehead. Very bizarre, very bizarre. So now back to what I, I mentioned earlier, the first important moment, institutionalization. So with the, the rise of sort of new medicine and medical technology in Europe and America in 18th, 19th centuries, um, hospitals really started to boom. You know, there's a, a, you know, a, a big a surge in, in sort of hospitals and asylums and institutions and stuff like that. At best, they were a place where sick people could go to get better. At worst, they were just holding grounds for people who were insane or disabled and you didn't know what else to do with them. Um, so um, th there was a, a guy who was uh, the pioneer of, of special education who, who started a movement that really believed that people with disabilities, intellectual disabilities, were different from people who were mentally ill. He made a distinction there. But he went further than that. It's not just that they're different than people who are mentally ill, but that they can be changed, they can be taught, they can be educated. We just need to reform them and turn them into better people and they can function in society again. Um, so institutions were built around that sort of, uh, you know, pity for this, this person who couldn't function. We're gonna put them in an institution, we're gonna teach them, and they're gonna be good citizens again and they're gonna be good people again. Okay. But um, it doesn't work out this way. It doesn't work out the way that they hoped. Um, through, uh, now, now that we have disenchanted the world and sort of internalized sickness and disability, um, it, it kind of makes sense why this, uh, institutions come into being. Uh, it also makes sense why the drive to educate and reform people with intellectual disabilities makes sense, right? If the problem is internal, we can cure you. We can make you better. This is the belief at the time. Um, so through uh, disenchantment and the despiritualization of disability and the medicalization of sin and evil, uh, we get the rise of institutions. Once we realize, wow, you know what? It's not gonna work. We can't actually uh, reform these people. Some of these people can't, we can't cure them the way we hoped. Uh, now we've entered in the period of socio-medical control. So talking a, a minute uh, again about disenchantment, uh, a byproduct of that, a side effect of that is what Charles Taylor calls excarnation. Um, and the best way to think of that is in opposition to incarnation. We all know what, what incarnation means. Excarnation is, is the opposite of that. So it's, it's through, the opposite, uh, through the process of uh, excarnation that reason and rationality become elevated and the body becomes to, you know, begins to lose significance. So through disenchantment and excarnation, uh, kind of put together, we are simultaneously sort of 
pushed inward and outward at the same time. So inward in that our minds now become the only way that we access the world, uh, and then out as in our bodies no longer have any significance anymore, and we're cut off from our sort of gut responses and reactions and emotional embodied uh, feelings. So in essence, by denying the body in that way, we're disenchanting the body. Um, and th it's through excarnation that our bodies become disenchanted. So going back to what I mentioned about socio-medical uh, period, uh, this is a great way of understanding that process I'm talking about. Because once, like I said, once institutions are filled and we realize we can't cure these people, we needed to do something different now, right? Because uh, they could not be cured and they could not be taught, which meant that they were a threat to the moral order, right? If you can't teach someone how to learn, you can't teach someone how to behave properly, they're gonna threaten society, they're dangerous. And actually during this period in the uh, beginning of the 20th century, there was just a lot of general debauchery going on, right? A lot of drunkenness and prostitution, that's why prohibition was a thing. Uh, and so all of the blame for this was placed on the quote unquote feeble-minded, the people who were intellectually disabled. They were blamed for a lot of this stuff. So this is uh, an interesting uh, propaganda sort of poster from Cincinnati, actually, that I found. So the feeble-minded are the problem, they're the cause of our, our wheel of vice, crime, and pauperism. Pretty uh, fascinating. Um, so <laughs> it's an interesting side note, which is that um, the American sort of eugenics craze and st sterilization laws were the uh, legitimizing force for Nazi Germany to do the same kind of things. And it was actually uh, people with disabilities who were the first ones to be killed in mass numbers as a sort of a way of testing some of the, uh, the, the means there. So once uh, you know, the body is disenchanted and sin and evil is internalized, the mind becomes primary for the individual. There was no hope for the quote-unquote feeble-minded. If you can't be cured and you can't be taught, then you're a menace and you must be eradicated. And this is what everyone believed, and there were tons of these laws passed, like the one I quoted from. This is a German propaganda poster. Uh, I'll translate for you. Roughly, it says that the people who are feeble-minded have way more children than people who aren't. And look at, I mean, just look at the depiction, like the way that it's even drawn differently. You know, all these, they have all these people, not only do they have more children, but the children inherit their feeble-mindedness. So they're passing it on, they must be exterminated. So slowly, um, through a lot of other forces, some of which like the civil rights movement, feminism, stuff like that, we became to, or culturally we became aware that the conditions that people were living in in institutions just really weren't okay anymore. They, they, they were something that needed to change. And you know, the, with the, the uh, momentum of the civil rights movement, there was a disability rights movement that started and they said, we need to get out of the institutions, this is wrong, we need to de-institutionalize. So this is the third important moment here. Um, and, and that's exactly what started to happen. A lot of these institutions started to shut down and the idea was to get people into the community, not isolated from the community. But there was a little bit of a problem though because people in these institutions sort of got dependent on that way of life. They didn't know anything else. So now you put them in the community, they don't know what to do. Not only that, but the community doesn't know what to do. It's kind of like when soldiers come back from combat. Like, soldiers only know how to be soldiers now, and the community doesn't know how to, like, what do you do? I mean, it's hard for soldiers to get jobs sometimes. There's a lot of stigma around that. It's the same exact thing. Um, it, 
the community didn't know how to receive these people, so what ends up happening is that it, they ended up getting just as isolated as they were before, but now they're in the community instead of an institution. So um, I think I have some disability rights there. So here's some, just some you know, protesting, stuff like that for disability rights stuff. But um, I think it's important here to, to draw on, on Moltmann. He, he offers a good model, I think, that's helpful to understand this and frame this. He calls it the privatization of friendship. Um, so through the, the forces of disenchantment and excarnation, which I talked about, friendship now becomes internalized, individualized, and privatized. Friendship only has an inward significance and is only a personal task uh, between people who are equals, right? Um, and actually, this is kind of the coming full circle part. In ancient Greece, you know, friendship was an essential part of life, but it was believed that friendship could only be counted as friendship if it was between equals, between men, between people of the same class, between people of the same race. If I was a friend to a, a slave, you know, then we weren't really friends because that meant that he was my equal. You know? So it didn't, it didn't work that way. And this is exactly what has happened through this period. Um, compare this to the way we think about enemy, for instance. Enemy has remained very much a public term, right? It makes sense for us to think about enemy in a public way, right? It's that government, it's that religious organization, it's that country. Those are the enemies to us as a collective public body. But friendship, doesn't. we don't really think of it that way. So given the privatization of friendship, when individuals who were living in isolation are now encouraged to enter back into society, two things happen, which I alluded to earlier, which is that the people who are uh, confronted in the community with people with disabilities used to think they were enemies, right? Because we put them in institutions, they were the cause of all of this debauchery in our, our society. So now, how are we supposed to be friends with these people that we thought were enemies, and because of this, uh, you know, the people with disabilities are just as isolated as they were before. Okay, so, take a second. What I was trying to do with that, that overview is to show the ways that we've, how, how we've treated pe people with disabilities has, has changed, but not really in the way we've imagined them, right? Disability rights stuff has definitely progressed, and there's a lot more, uh, legislation, for instance, the Americans with Disability Act, is that's why there's ramps here to get into this building over here. And so there's been a lot of, of good progress made, but my argument is that we haven't really progressed as far as we think we have, because there's these sort of hidden ways that we view people like this that we don't even realize. So as a result, we can't actually give them the, the freedom and the life that they want. So, like I said, this is something very personal for me, and it's just something, this is something I've been thinking a lot about trying to make sense of, because when I want to work with people with disabilities and try to get them integrated into their community, this is the sort of stuff I'm coming up against. This is the reality. This is how I've been taught to believe, even though my brother is disabled. It's not like uh, somehow I've been immune to that. I've picked it up through all these different channels. So, some things that I've come across w through this course I think are really helpful at this point, and I'm almost finished, so there's just a couple more things I want to say. We talked about friendship, uh, Moltmann uh, brought it up, the privatization of friendship. This is his sort of definition of friendship. It's not an ideal, a purpose, or a law, but a promise, a loyalty, fidelity, and openness to one another. Friendship is a human relationship which springs from freedom, and it exists in mutual freedom and preserves that freedom. So friendship is the concrete concept of freedom for Moltmann. 
And the first priority for Moltmann is to make friendship public again, to deprivatize it and make it a, a public thing. Um, I, and I think that this is an important description um, because it's in opposition to the way that we've come to understand friendship, which is very much the ancient way is just among equals, right? He says that friendship cannot be lived in the inner circle of one equals, but only in open affection and public respect for other people. Now, as good as this sounds, I think that there, there can be some problems with this if you just take it at face value. I think there's another important element we need to talk about. Um, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm not going to read it. If you guys are all pastors, I'm sure you know it very, very well. I wasn't sure it was going to be here, so I put it up there just in case. And I, I think that you know, Tar Charles Taylor talks about this and has a really, I think, important way of, of understanding this that I think completes Moltmann's statement about friendship. And that is that the Samaritan is wounded by the, moved, the wounded man and moved to act. And so inaugurates a new relationship of friendship, love, charity with this person. And it cuts across the boundaries of what was allowed. You know, this person is outside of, of, of what is acceptable. I'm crossing that back, that uh, boundary as a free act of my own person, you know. And interesting, he points out that in the New Testament, the word for pity has to do with your guts and your bowels. Like, that's where the response comes from. When I feel pity for someone, when the Good Samaritan felt pity for this man, he was moved deep inside his bowels, his guts, his flesh. That's what motivated him. And I think that that's the important component we need to add to Moltmann's idea of friendship. So that in the Good Samaritan parable, what you have is a free act of public friendship responding from our guts, our bowels, the very depth of our fleshly being, to the body, the flesh of another. So public friendship, then, is a reversal of excarnation. It's a way of fully inhabiting our bodies and responding to others in their body. So I would argue that it's only through this reversal of excarnation that friendship can become public and that people with disabilities receive the dignity and freedom and desire and love that they deserve and demand. I would also like to suggest that the Good Samaritan uh, must be willing to enter in and respond from our guts from our, our bodies. And I think that that's something that I'm not familiar with or comfortable with doing. And I think if more people uh, were a little bit more embodied in the way that they understand themselves and others, maybe we could make some of these things actually a reality. So I want to leave you with one last quote. Uh, and this is by Jean Vanier. I once visited a psychiatric hospital that was a kind of warehouse of human misery. Hundreds of children with severe disabilities were lying neglected on their cots. There was a deadly silence. Not one of them was crying. When they realize that nobody cares, that nobody will answer them, children no longer cry. It takes too much energy. We cry out only when there is hope that someone may hear us. And the only thing I would add is maybe somebody may touch us, embrace us, and hold us. So thank you very much. To those who would tear China.
Yes, we can. What your country can do for you, I have a dream. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for your country. My, my poor little children. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. On SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access Public America. America. History, in, History the in the making. 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 History in the making.